Good evening. I turned this on and it didn't have a green light on it, so I guess we have to go with the pulpit mic. Uh, turn over to Exodus chapter 3. <clears throat> we'll start by reading uh, verses 1 through 14. <clears throat> and, uh, and then we'll come back to that in the, uh, in the conclusion of my message. How many have uh, studied the attributes of God before? Not too many? That's what I was thinking today. As I'm studying this verse, I can't remember in a church that I've ever studied myself the attributes of God. And uh, probably because perhaps the seeker-sensitive were more concerned about five ways to be a good husband and ten ways to be a good student, and we never really get past the surface. If you read a lot of our, or listen to a lot of our contemporary Christian music, uh, it seems to dance around the surface of moralism uh, rather than really getting down deep in the, uh, in the word of God. And uh, I was just curious. Uh, when I, as I study uh, the attributes of God, um, we know that God's thoughts are far above our thoughts. He's incomprehensible. He's beyond finding out. It's not until you really dig into the attributes of God that you really start understanding that. If you think about the world in which we live, um, <clears throat> Paul was called up to the third heaven, and so if you think about the heavens, I think the first heaven is in our atmosphere where the birds fly. Uh, the second atmosphere is where the planets and the galaxies and the solar system is, and then the third heaven is where, uh, wherever God, uh, Paul was called up to. Um, but if you think about that, you know, when you think about we understand the birds, we understand the sun, we understand the moon, we understand the Milky Way and the galaxies, and we know that there's multiple galaxies out there from the Hubble telescope. But once we get beyond that, our mind just kind of goes into the ignorance of incomprehensibility. And that's kind of where I am with God. You, you study God, and you understand what he's kind of revealed to you, but it's not all quite there, it seems like. There's just something just out of our reach that we just can't comprehend and uh, we just have to give in to our humility and our ignorance of the incomprehensibility uh, of God. And so let me read Exodus chapter 3. We'll read verses 1 through 14. And as I said, we'll come back to this as a conclusion. It says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of the Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him. In a flame of fire, out of the midst of a bush, he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great, incomprehensible sight. Why is this bush, why this bush is not burned? When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called out uh, from the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off of your feet. For the place, on the, the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the afflictions of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, and I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, 
to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Parasites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression, uh, oppression which, which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, said to God Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I I am has sent me to you. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we thank you for your revelation, Lord, uh, for showing us a little bit of yourself, uh, knowing that we cannot grasp all that there is to know uh, concerning you. We know that all of eternity will be getting to know you further and never coming to the full comprehension of who you are and how you are and what you are. You are far above our thoughts and the little effort that we make tonight in knowing you, I pray will humble us, will encourage us, will strengthen us, and will help us in being transformed into the image and likeness of your son, Jesus Christ. Do not allow your word to return void Accomplish your purpose in and through our lives tonight. And it's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Paul Washer said that Sunday morning is perhaps the most idolatrous hour of the week because people worship an image they know not and have concocted an image in their minds that is not according to scriptures. Exodus 23 says, you shall have no other God before me. Exodus 34, 14 says, For you shall not worship any other god. For the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Constructing any image of God that is not according to God's revelation of himself is idolatrous. And it's sad that none of us have studied the attributes of God. Be it this idol be made of wood, stone, precious metal, or made up from our own imagination. If we are worshiping any God that is not the God of the Bible, that is simply idolatrous. We must continually examine ourselves, take every thought captive to the word of God, and allow him to build the image in our own minds of himself. We must continuously destroy the false images in which we believe and believe the one true God and how he has revealed himself. God has revealed himself to us in two primary ways. The first one is general revelation. Revelation that we all have, whether believer or non-believer. Romans chapter 1 and verse 20 uh, says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, 
has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. God says that his invisible attributes are clearly seen, that anyone that stands before God and says, God, I couldn't see you, I didn't know you, that would not be an excuse before God. They are clearly seen. Nobody in here uh, would, uh, would believe that, uh, that I have a Lexus uh, that was formed from Hunter Airfield when it took off out of Hunter and went down to A-Action Auto and dropped one of its bombs and it blew up and I happened to drive by and there was a Lexus and now I want to sell it to you. You would say that's absurd because a design requires that there's a designer. And there's no greater design in all of the world than how the world has been made. And yet we say those things, or at least the world says those things, uh, happen by chance. The other way that we receive revelation is special revelation. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, it says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, by his son. So God's specific revelation is scriptures is through his son, Jesus Christ. Second Timothy chapter three, verses 16 and 17 says that all scriptures is God breathed, uh, is breathed out by God, is profitable for preaching, or excuse me, for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Also, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20 and 21 says, knowing, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scriptures comes from someone's own interpre- interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Psalm 19, if you want to turn with me there. Psalm 119, starting in verse 7 and following, uh, God speaks to us, and notice these words as we, uh, as we read and as we uh, go through. The law, the testimony, the precepts, the commandments, and the rules. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteousness altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even more than fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and dripping of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. And so God has revealed himself to us through his law, through his testimony, through his precepts, and through his commandments. And so what is an attribute? What is an attribute? Well, I have a few people here who have tried to divine what an attribute is. Excuse me, according to John Owens, he's a a congregationalist. The attributes of God are his infinite perfections in being and working. In other words, we can see his attributes in what he says and what he does. More specifically, they are his goodness, his power, his justice, his mercy, his holiness, his wisdom, and the like, which he delighteth to exercise 
towards his creatures for the praise of his glory. According to James Boyce, a good Baptist, the attributes of God's are those peculiarities which mark or define the mode of his existence or what constitutes his character. According to Augustus Strong, the attributes of God are those distinguishing characteristics of divine nature which are inseparable from the idea of God and which constitute the basis and ground for his various manifestations to his creatures. I like the phrase, the divine nature, which are inseparable from the idea of God. We'll see in a minute uh, that, uh, that the attributes of God are not something attached to God, but are the very essence and being of God himself. Uh, according to Robert Dabney, a good Presbyterian, he said the attributes of God are those permanent or essential qualities of his nature, which he has made known to us in his word. They are traits qualifying his nature always and making it the nature it is. William Shedd, another Presbyterian, said the attributes of God are modes either of the relation or of the operation of the divine essence. They are consequently an analytical and closer description of the essence. The attributes are essential qualities of God. None of these can be separated or removed from God. They are his very essence. They are his very nature. The most common term for describing an aspect of God's being, an attribute, has the unfortunate connotation of some quality being added or attributed. Right? When we say that, uh, when we think of the attributes of God, it is the characteristics that we attribute to God. That's not the right term that we need to use because they are not attributed to God. They are the very essence of God. It is who he is as a, as a being, which makes it difficult for our minds to comprehend. The facets of God's person are not derived Hence, the preferred, the preferred term is a perfection or property or value. However, these all, including attribute, may be understood to be, to be perceived uh, as God. Okay, so that's a couple of theologians. You can see uh, that uh, it's very difficult to define because we're talking about attributes that are not attributed to someone, but is the very being. We attribute attributes. You might say... <clears throat> You know, Tom is a, a nice guy, and then something happens, and I turn angry, and then you say, huh, he's, not, he's not very nice any longer. So you attribute to me niceness, and then I lost it, and then you attributed something else to me. That's not how God is. God is the very essence of his attributes, and to separate those attributes to God is for God to cease being God. So the attribute is a quality, a characteristic, or a being. It answers the question, who is God and or what is God? Why should we study attributes? If all of these quotes that I read seem to confuse your mind or to move our mind into incomprehensibility of the attributes of God, then why should we even bother to study them? Well... <clears throat> Because we live out our beliefs. What we believe affects our worldview. 
what we believe about God is how we are going to respond to God. If we understand that God is everywhere present, that there's no place that we can go where God is not. If we go scuba diving, God is there. If we take a ride on the space shuttle up into the heavens, God is there. If we get lost down in the coal mines, God is there. There's nowhere to get out of God's presence. If you believe that, and if you know that, that should affect everything that you do in life. To understand that the words that you mouth are being mouthed in the presence of God. To understand the movie that you're watching, you're watching in the very presence of God, should cause us to shudder as sinful creatures in the midst of a holy God, to know that he is everywhere present in every action, in every thought that we are doing throughout each and every day. If we, <clears throat> we are studying the attributes of God because it affects the view of life in the womb. If we really believe that God is everywhere present and you can't go anywhere out of the presence of God, and Psalm 139 states very clearly that God knits the baby together in the mother's womb by his very hands and we are ripping the baby out of God's hands there in the presence of the mother's womb, it affects the way that you believe about abortion. It affects the way that we live and raise our children. It's no surprise that I adopted a child. She's actually my niece. I adopted her at, uh, she came into the home at three. I adopted her at eight. And uh, she's been with us now for quite some time. I know some of you have adopted children. And and I don't know if you have the same issues that I have. uh, But they, they can't comprehend. And I've come to believe that there are stages in life. And uh, that first stage, I now have a, a granddaughter, and that first stage is she can do no wrong. They just get kissed on and loved on and hugged and taken care of and held and caressed for the first year, year and a half of their life. That is preparing them for the next stage of life when you have to discipline them. Because they have to understand that you love them and that by disciplining them, this is a loving act. And see, when... When Jordan came into my home, she came in at three. And automatically, she was in a household where there were do's and don'ts and there were consequences and punishment. So in her mind, she had a hard time understanding, how, you don't love me. You spank me. How is that love? And I tell her, I said, Jordan, I said, have you ever seen me walking down in the middle of Walmart and seeing another child playing around and pulling things off the shelf, and I run over there and grab them and spank them? Have you ever seen me come down to your classroom and pull another child out of the classroom and take her down the hall and spank them because they were misbehaving? No, I've never seen you do that. Why? Because they're not my child. I only discipline my child because I love my child. That's the same thing that God says. See, if we have an understanding of who God is, we're gonna, it's going to change the way that we raise our children. It's going to affect the view that we have of old age and dying. Listen, I've been in the nursing home for quite some time, and I can tell you some stories. People have a, I don't know what the word I'm looking for, they don't like to deal with aging. They don't want to face it. I always have had problems finding people that wanted to come down to the nursing home and serve. 
And the only way that I could understand why they didn't do that is because I can go down to the jailhouse, and you might be a pretty honest person. And so when you go down to the jailhouse, you're like, this is a crazy place. But I'm a pretty good person, so I know that I would never end up here. But, you know, when you go to the nursing home, there's no guarantee that you won't end up there. And we don't like to face that. But if you have a biblical worldview and you believe that every man is made in God's image and you know that God is present everywhere and his desire is to love the unlovable, then you can find good reasons to go down to the nursing home and love those old folks. I can tell you two quick situations. And uh, Amy was a part of one of them. But there was a uh, a, uh, new patient that came to the uh, nursing home and needed to be advised with the physical therapist and the nurses there and they were discussing the plan of care and the child said do you all euthanize okay this is this is modern day america a couple couple years ago do you all euthanize and of course they said no that's illegal we can't we can't do that there's another situation where the parent passed away and the children were over in California, and they were over here in Georgia. And uh, they said, well, what would you like us to do with your loved one? Oh, just, just cremate her and send us the ashes. Just know, just seem to be heartless. Just don't care. And I don't know the situation. They might have couldn't afford to leave California fly over here. I don't know all the situation. But really, it's, it's, it's pretty heartless to just say something like that. If you have a worldview, if you understand the attributes of God, if you understand who they are, it's going to affect the way that you live. It's going to affect the way that you view things. Listen, it's going to affect the way that you die. Right? I, I preach sermons sometimes, uh, uh, funerals a lot of times. And sometimes a funeral home just call me because they know that I'll, they'll, I'll, they'll, I'll do it. And those call me and say, yeah, this person doesn't have a pastor, doesn't have a church home. Uh, they always want a person to come down and officiate the funeral. Do you mind doing that? I hate doing that. I don't know if they're, I don't know if they're saved. I don't want to preach them into heaven. Right? I, don't want to, I don't want to say anything derogatory or anything wrong. I had this one uh, person, uh, one lady, uh, asked me to bury her son. And I knew the lady, and she was very spiritual. She was, I thought she was a believer, and she wanted to bury her son. So I went with the assumption that the, the son was saved. And I was getting ready to walk down the aisle with you know, the funeral procession, and the son walked through the back door. And the funeral office, or the funeral director there said, uh, we're getting ready to take the family down. You're the son. Let's walk out front. And he said, no, that's okay. I'm going to sit in the back. And come to find out that, it was, that he was estranged with his dad, and he just came to the funeral just to pay respect for one last time before he left. And as I was preaching, I noticed kind of the spirit that came over the crowd right there that this wasn't a very pleasant individual. And I had, compa- I have, I had come to be prepared to celebrate a life well lived, and I got there and found out that a life wasn't well lived. And I had to change my sermon right there as I was preaching and teaching. Listen, if you know the Lord, the way that you die is a whole lot different. It's a celebration. It's a celebration. We know that death is our entrance into the presence of God, is a doorway into heaven. So it's well worth us taking the time to study the attributes of God. Listen, we study the attributes because it affects our church attendance and worship. A high view of God will create in us 
a high view of worship. Why is a lot of our contemporary Christian music just kind of float around the surface? Take some of the, take some of the Christian music that you listen to and separate it out of the Christian context and just sit down and listen to it and pretend that you're singing it to your spouse. If you can sing it to your spouse, it's not a very deep theological sermon. And a lot of our contemporary Christian music is that way. Listen, if, if I want to sell a lot of records, and I don't want to offend anybody, and I want to sell just to the largest population that I can, then I'm going to, instead of mentioning God or Jesus, I'm just going to say you. I find my identity in you, right? Well, a child can sing that to their daddy. Daddy, I love you, and I find my identity in you, right? Why not mention the name of Jesus Christ in your songs? Because you won't sell as many albums, I imagine. And so the, the high view of God is going to create a high worship of God. We're going, to have, we're going to have songs that highlight the attributes of God and who he is. And we're going to celebrate those attributes. What are some of the attributes? We're going to go quickly. Uh, we're going to look at one of them tonight, simplicity. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, I'll explain some of them a little bit as we go. But the aseity of God, the aseity of God, A-S-E-I-T-Y, basically is out of self. God is self-contained, self-existent, self-satisfied. He is the cause of everything, but he is an uncaused cause himself. Everything uh, originates from him, but there is nothing prior to him that originated him. He is self-existing. Everything is out of self. God is spirit, his spirituality. There's no boundaries. He can't be surveyed. He's immeasurable. He cannot be contained. He's not boxed in. Sovereignty, his authority, holiness transcendent. He's set apart from the world. Right? He's, he's, he's the one true God, and there's no one like him. There is no one and nothing like him. He is so set apart from us and so different than us and so high above us that it's beyond our comprehension and beyond our finding out. That's his holiness and transcendence. His omnipresence, omnipotence, and omniscience, ever-present, all-powerful, all-knowing, immutable, doesn't change, never changes. James says uh, it's not like the, the tree in the sun with a shadow that changes throughout the day. You know, the sun's rising up here, here's the tree, the shade goes way out here. And as the sun rises, the shade comes in, then it goes around the tree, and the next thing you know, in the evening, it's going back out this way. Always changing. God never changes. All the world around us is sinking sand, but God is a solid rock. Everything is in fluctuation, everything is moving, but God is the sure foundation. He's infinite and he's eternal. He's eternal. He's faithful, truthful, he's wise. His love, goodness, mercy, grace, and forgiveness, his knowledge, foreknowledge, justice, wrath, jealousy, and anger. And anger. What are or what is the relationship or relationships between the attributes? This gets into simplicity. Well, first of all, God is one. When we think of God's simplicity, 
We don't mean that, that he's simple. We, just, we mean that he's one. In other words, we're complex, not that we're harder to understand than God is, but we're complex in that we have different parts. We have a respiratory system, we have a circulation system, we have ears, we have feet. God doesn't have that. He's spirit. He's one. Right? So he doesn't have any parts. So he's simply, he's simply one. One pure spirit. So there's no parts, there's no divisions, there's no segments, there's no layers, there's no percentages of differences. In other words, he's not 100% love and 10% wrath. No, he's 100% Wrath and he's 100% love. He's all of that to its, to its complete f- fulfillment. He's not mixed. He's not tangled together. He's not separate threads. But he is all one. Perhaps the best example that I can give of this uh, is the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ, we see that God is 100% love. And he's 100% wrath. Over in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, it says this about God the Father. It says, it pleased him to crush his son. Now think about that for a minute. It pleased him to crush his son. What was, he be, what was being pleased? What was being pleased was his wrath. Romans chapter 1 verse 18, the wrath of God is against those who suppress the truth. All of us are truth suppressors. And so the wrath of God is upon us. The most difficult problem that we have is not sin, but the result of sin. And that is because we sin and we suppress the truth, God's wrath is upon us. How are we going to get the wrath of God off of us? Well, it pleased God. He could not just love us as sinners. He had to deal with his wrath. He had to deal with his, with his uh, justice first after he 100% satisfied the wrath of God in putting his son, Jesus Christ, to death. Only then could he extend his love to us. He could not extend his love to us until he dealt with that issue. This is why salvation is so important. Because you have two decisions to make. There's only two decisions. Are you going to accept the fact that Jesus Christ took your wrath that was meant to you, absorbed it in his body so that God can offer you salvation? Or you can say, I could do this thing myself. I'm good enough to get to heaven. I'm a righteous person. My good deeds outweigh the rest. I'm just going to go there and stand before God and tell him that I'm all right and I did the right thing. You know what's going to happen? Psalm 139. Where can I go where God's not there? Can I descend into hell? Can God not be there? No, he'll be there. Can I ascend, or I should say descend, can I ascend into heaven and God be there? Yes, he'll be there. See, some of us think that hell is a place where God is not. Hell is a place where God is pouring out his wrath upon mankind who rejected his son, Jesus Christ. So you can either accept the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, or you're going to have to face God on your own. That's the only two choices that you have. If you know God, that's going to affect the way that you live. If you believe what the Word of God says, that's going to affect the decision that you're going to make tonight before you walk out that door. 
Because if you walk out of that door tonight and you breathe your last and you haven't accepted the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, you're going to have to face Jesus Christ, or you have to face God on your own. And what you're going to face is the wrath of God. Because he has to please his wrath. He has to. He can't deny it. He can't neglect it. He has to. And that's what he did in the cross. All three persons of the Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, share all of the attributes equally, fully, and completely for all eternity. All three of them share all of the attributes from now, from from eternity past, all the way into eternity future. Just like I explained to you before that... uh, that I might, you might attribute to me an attribute of kindness until you offend me and then an attribute of kindness leaves and then all of a sudden there's this attribute of anger that's around and you say, wow, where did that other attribute go? That's not happening with God. He is who he is and he's going to remain who he is throughout all eternity. All the attributes are inseparably connected and eternally permanent. So let's go back to Exodus chapter 3 and look at our passage, and I'm going to show you three things in closing. The first thing I want you to see is a stunning view, a stunning view, verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Okay, what was so stunning about that view? Well, what do you think when you see a bush burst, excuse me, what do you think when you see a bush burning? You see that the fire is dependent upon the bush. But this this burning wasn't depending on the bush. Listen, God doesn't depend on anything. He is self-sufficient and he is who he is. He is a consuming fire. That's who he is. And he's not dependent on anything else to be that consuming fire. That's who he is. God is stunningly, incomprehensibly singular. He is one. God is purely one in spirit. He is without body, without parts, without passions, without origin, without composition, without becoming. He is simply being. Right? Think about that for a moment. We are beings. Beings have potential of becoming. God is a being, but he's a being because he exists. And he actually exists as he is, and there is no becoming. He is who he is. We are beings that have potential to become. We can become something, but God already is what he is. And God gives us the potential to become But God already is and doesn't need anybody to give him anything to become anything because he already is who he is. Secondly, verse 4. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see God, uh, to see God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near Take the sandals off your feet, for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. Stunning realization. Listen, a magnifying glass, listen, a magnifying glass takes the rays from the sun, goes through the magnifying glass, 
centralizes those things, and it creates a heat that can burn, that starts a fire. Why do you think that when we study the word of God and God reveals in himself, we read over in 1 John, God is love, and go to another one that says God is spirit, right? Because we can only handle one ray at a time. If God revealed himself in all of his fullness, all at one time, we would all die instantly. No one has looked on God and lived. No one. No one. Exodus 33 and 20. But he said, you cannot see my face. For the man shall not see me and live. Hebrews chapter 12, 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. God revealed himself in parts, in attributes. We don't study God in incomprehensible oneness. If God was to reveal himself all at once in all of his glory and all of his attributes, we would be like a piece of paper under a magnifying glass. Third, Verse 14, a stunning revelation. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. He is the great I am. He is simply who he is. Tell him The one who is, is the one who sent you. Tell them, the one who never changes, the one who always is, the one who is always the present tense verb, has sent me. He enjoys his own being. The Trinity is knit together as one that penetrate one another's joys and delights, singularly and sufficiently self-satisfying. Right? That bush burned, or that bush was on fire, but it didn't burn. Right? There's nothing in God that he needs. There's nothing that we can give God that he needs. He's not dependent upon us. He, he, we don't... We don't increase his joy or decrease his joy. He is self-contained and self-satisfied. And so in the Trinity, right, the Trinity is knit together as one that penetrates one another's joys and delights, singularly and sufficiently self-satisfied. He's one. Oneness. Completeness. Fullness. God made us to enjoy him. He didn't make us so that he can find joy in us. He is already satisfied. He is already self-contained. So I am simply who I am. In all of its attributes. In all of its being. It's unbelievable. 
that many in the church have never studied the attributes of God. If you want to, in February, senior saints are going to start the study of the attributes on Thursday mornings. I'd like to invite you there. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Lord, we can't comprehend you, but Lord, we love you. Your thoughts are so far above our thoughts. We can't wrap our minds around you. We, we enter ourselves into the ignorance of your incomprehensibility. I felt like I was twirling, uh, twirling us around tonight, trying to, to catch and to grasp who you are as a simple, purely one being. We're finite. We're made up of a bunch of parts. We change. We're in flux. And it's hard for us to comprehend a self-contained, purely one, completely satisfied God who just in his great pleasure and desire created, created us for the purpose of bringing us pleasure and bringing glory to his name. And so, Lord, I pray tonight that you would increase our view of God, give us a high view of God, a high understanding of God, that we wouldn't just spend our time worshiping our good deeds and worshiping our need for love and all those other things, but, Lord, we would really sing about your glory and about your attributes and who you are as the the one true God of the universe. Help us to grasp you and to understand you better so that we can give you the worship that you deserve, Father. Thank you that tonight you have opened our mind and our hearts just a little bit more to to who you are. I don't know how far we got to it. I don't know how deep we've gone, Lord, but I know that I tried my best in my little brain to, to comprehend something that would be filling and rewarding to us tonight, and I hope that it was. Take your word and use it for your honor and for your glory and use it to transform us, to have a deeper love for you and a deeper worship of you. It's all I ask, and it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.